Some of you met last week. Some of you weren't weren't here, but we covered uh, material last week. We only did 30 minutes, so we didn't get real in-depth. And so if there's anything over the last couple of weeks that you're interested in or questions about or that you noticed, we'll talk about it. We're going to focus primarily from David and Bathsheba. Uh, we talked a little bit about that last week, but primarily from that incident forward. But if you've got things before that in the Old Testament, we'll, we'll talk about it. And in the book of John, we'll talk about anything you want to talk about in the book of John because we finished... Uh, did we finish the book of John tomorrow? Is that or did we finish? I think we finished, didn't we? I'm trying to think. Sometimes I'll read a day ahead or two ahead. Yeah, we finished today. So, um, so we're done with the Gospels. We have done all four Gospels, and so that leaves us just now with Acts and the Epistles and Revelation. That's all, right? We just and we're almost uh, six months in. So we're, we're closing in on you having read over half the Bible, uh, which is pretty uh, nice to think about. You know, that? does anybody know what the midday of the year is, the middle point of the year? It's July 2nd. only reason I know that is because my brother's birthday is July 2nd, and he always reminded me that he was born at the epicenter of the year, the middle point of the year. And so on July 2nd, you will be over halfway through, and here's why. Because on July 2nd, you will have read the entire book of Psalms. And on July 3rd, you will begin reading Psalms again. Okay? So you're reading Psalms through twice this year in this reading plan, if you're on the one we're on. So, um, All right. Questions, comments, discussion, things that you noticed. Uh, yes, Miss Sue. Here's what I get. The, you get the picture that David has a real compassion and heart. And Joab is the guy that takes action because David won't. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that David was supposed to, but in Joab's mind, something should have been done. And David, I'm doing this, I'm protecting David, because you get the idea that Joab's kind of the muscle, that he's kind of the protector of, and those kind of things. Um, uh, so he feels like he's doing what needs to be done. Like he, he feels like Absalom needs to be killed. You know, he feels like people need to be taken care of. Just to leave him around is not what needs to happen. I mean, Joab, the scriptures give this sense. What I love about the Bible is if there was one human in the Bible that they wanted to, that they should have wanted to sanitize, to take out all the rough edges about him, it would have been David. And they didn't. And what they show is David is a complex individual who is a brilliant strategist. I started to be like George W. Bush, strategery. He's great at strategery. He's great at strategy. I mean, he's a great strategist. um, But he's not, and even though he's a man of war, he, he doesn't do a lot, especially after he becomes king, he doesn't do the killing himself. I mean, and they tell him, you stay back and protect. And so um, you get the sense that uh, Joab feels that David, and, and just from a pure human point of the story, he feels David is compromised by his feelings and will not do what needs to be done to protect the kingdom. Now, David would say he's compromised, not compromised, but that he's following the Lord's direction. I mean, over and over again, he talks about, you know, even when he gets exiled and they bring the ark to him, and he says, take that ark back. If God is done with me, 
then God's done with me. We're not going to do this by force, but let me send a couple of spies up there. And so it's kind of a mixture, and, and Joab's kind of the right-hand man. I mean, part of the reason, Sue, is because not all of the killing was bad that he did. Absalom's a complicated figure. From a human perspective, you see Absalom, and all you see is that he was going to be rebellious his entire life. And that's what Joab saw. And if he was going to protect David, he had to do that. What David saw is, I've lost my oldest son because Absalom killed him. And now I've lost the second son. And God has promised that an heir will come from my family. And I'm losing sons. So David always hoped, as parents do, that reconciliation would happen. But Joab said no. He tucks it underneath. He, he's friendly. He takes, you know, he gets the sword off to the side, and he's like a covert op. So, other questions, thoughts, things you saw? We're getting balcony people now. Not just Diane. We got balcony people up there. So, if y'all have got questions, just yell them down. All right. Anything you noticed that maybe you hadn't noticed before, or discovered that you hadn't seen? Yeah, it's a mixture. It's not. Jerusalem, even today, and Israel, is, is, has desert places, but it also has some wilderness and some, uh, you know, for instance, when it says that the, the people, and we may have talked about this, in Exodus, they wandered in the wilderness. It doesn't say they wandered in the desert. That's been kind of a presumed thing, but they wandered in the wilderness, so there would have been some foliage and that kind of thing. They probably, there are some definite wildlife and bear-like creatures over there. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting phrase. They lost more people in the forest. Well, Absalom is a victim of that. You know, they you get this sense that they're not real good at figuring it out, and they get caught and hung and all that. But it's an, it's an interesting story because it's when they're going to go attack David, uh, right, Kathy? And, they, and he says, you don't want to go now. He's like a, a bear that's lost its cub. You don't want to, you know, he's going to rile up on you. So it, it's interesting military strategy you see here. I mean, all over the place. Uh, I've mentioned a couple times I've been watching a documentary, History of America. And one of the things they talk about is in both the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, what won those more than just pure might was the network of information that Lincoln sent thousands of uh, Morse code messages, telegrams and that the South never got to where they were using them. Lincoln could be apprised of what was happening on the battlefield instantaneously. And there's that part in here where David is waiting. Is it David that's waiting for the news? And he sends their two messengers that are racing to get there, and they see one coming. They go, it's one. He's got news, right? And then the other one's coming behind, and they have that whole deal because communication was vital. But you see all those military strategies. David sending a spy to be in Absalom's court, you know, uh, just interesting military strategy. But somebody told me that the History Channel or one of those channels right now is doing a series on military strategy in the Bible. I haven't seen any of it, but somebody was telling me just breaking down battles in the Bible from military strategy. Interesting. Have you seen that? Or Yeah. Jack. Yeah, it, it was that. that's one of the earliest references in Scripture to a firm belief in life after death. Now, you have uh, Abraham's classic declaration when he goes with Isaac up on the mountain 
And in the book of Hebrews, enlighten us that he says we will be back in worship. And he says he, belonged, he believed that God could bring him back from the dead so that, that God had those powers. But the actual going to them is, is a new thing. There are a lot of people that use this as a primary verse for age of accountability discussions, for uh, a baby that dies, their, their eternal fate. Um, because David makes it very clear here that uh, there's only one place he can go to him. That's somewhere after death. You can't get to him now. And so, and that's an interesting, that's a whole interesting dynamic because David is mourning and wailing and God doesn't answer. And then the child dies and he gets up, dusts himself off and says, I've mourned. I'll see him someday. Move on. Yeah, sorry. One of the things that, that is unique about David among kings of this day is most kings would never mourn over a child unless it was a firstborn. If it was their male heir, that was because of their line, not because of the child. But they would not have been emotionally attached to a child like David was here, which shows the compassionate heart that he had. Um, this was... In ref, I mean, if you just think about it from a worldly point of view, this was a child born out of wedlock from an adulterous situation where David had the father killed. To have the child die for many people, um, and don't hear me, this, could, this is going to sound harsh, but for some people it would seem like, well, that problem, that issue has been resolved. Um, not for David. David was emotionally invested. And it just kills him that his family implodes. And it does, doesn't it? I mean, David is not the best father in the Bible. Well, because, yeah, and part of the reason for that is um, Absalom had gone in, and the way that you showed you were king was that you took what the kings had. So you took his throne and you sat on it, and you took his scepter or whatever, and then you took his wives. And I think that's partial fulfillment of the prophecy that your wives will be given. Now, also, uh, what the prophecy about what happened with David is the exact prophecy that God said would happen to the nation of Israel. They would be exiled from their land. They would be their wives would be given away. Their sons would be killed. I mean, it's the exact same punishment. And so when he comes back to the temple, or when the temple, when he comes back to Jerusalem, the temple's not built, when he comes back to Jerusalem, Absalom has defiled those concubines, and Absalom has said, these are mine, not yours. And so what he really did, in many cultures, they would have just killed him. And he takes care of them. It makes that point. He puts them away somewhere and takes care of them until they die, but... They're not his anymore. His, his thinking. And I know that, that is so abstract for us to think about. David was doing the honorable thing by not taking the concubines back. The ten concubines, you know I mean? But, um, anyways. Anybody recognize the title of a famous southern novel from a scripture this week? Wasn't it William Faulkner that wrote a book, Absalom? Oh, Absalom, this comes directly from the cry of David uh, when he comes. 
Yes, passes away. Yeah. Yeah, and well, they did and they didn't. He becomes known as Solomon um, because it makes the point. Tell me where that is, Sue, so I make sure I get there right because I want to make sure I don't. Press. Yeah, 25. Um, yeah. Um, and the interesting there is thing is that, uh, you know, I mean, in the Old Testament, names are symbolic. You know, I mean, we'll get to Hosea where he names his kid. These are not my people, and the Lord no longer loves us. Uh, you know, beautiful names. Um, but so they're symbolic, and so there is symbolism there in Jedidiah, which is loved by the Lord. And so I, I, it never says explicitly, so they didn't name him that, and they went against the Lord. Perhaps that was part of his name, or they referred to him in that way, or... Um, I'm not sure. It is an interesting little passage. But nobody ever says, Solomon, you know Jedediah. Right. Uh-uh. Why, did they, why, did they, why did they keep cutting people's heads off? What's that? Head cutting off was a part of their culture. If you won a battle, there was a way you showed that you had won the battle, you take his head off. So most of the time they didn't care about their head anymore because they were dead. They didn't do that normally. Now, David seems to have killed Goliath by hit the stone, and then he cut his head off. I know one thing. You also have to think. Now, it is morbid sounding. They didn't have um, pulse monitors. They didn't have heart monitors. They couldn't hook them up and see if they were dead. If their head was cut off, they were dead. There was no question about that. And if you wanted to show that somebody was dead, hey, we've killed your king, here's his head. On a stick or over your wall or whatever. The question is why the Bible never explicitly in the Old Testament condemns concubines, um, multiple wives. Um, I'm going to give you multiple wives. Yeah. Now, what, what we will see is that Everybody that has multiple wives, they have major problems. <laughs> right? Danny, you got that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think about all that we've read, okay? Um, Abraham, his second wife, slave, girl, concubine, you know, all caused him problems. David has all kinds of problems with his family. No, he didn't punish him because of the concubines. No. Yeah. Now, he he does get on to him for taking the wife. I mean, he t- gets on to it for the Bathsheba incident. God punishes him for taking the wife and for killing the husband. It's, it's That's a dual thing. Because that whole story of Nathan is about the lamb that's taken. And, and uh, just for your knowledge, stealing somebody's lamb was not a capital offense. But David makes it that because he's so mad about what's happened. And so he, he, for for that incident, but for just having them, no. Um, there's this sense that when you, and part of that was because, and I, God never condemns it uh, explicitly for sure, that their culture was you conquered a land, you got some wives. Um, it was, that was part of it. You 
you, you conquered a king, you got his wives or you got wives. Just uh, And that was a way that you showed that you had conquered the land. Right. You do have lots of mother-in-laws in that way, yes. You called it punishment. I will refrain from calling it that. Jack? <laughs> we'll get to John, all right? Yeah, that's all right. Anything else in the Old Testament? We don't want to belabor the point here, but we want to stick here. Anybody, your your uh, thoughts on the Amnon, Tamar, uh, same dad. They're all David's kids. His half-sister, yeah. They, yeah, well, uh, Absalom and Tamar are full brother and sister. Amnon was David's son, but had a different mom. And Amnon was the oldest and the heir to the throne. And that's why even when David finds out that he's done this, he doesn't want him killed. Uh, He doesn't want it. And that's also why when you get to that part, Absalom could say, well, he's got to come because he's your representative. He's the next in line. You know, Absalom calls everybody out there. You know, well, why do you want want him? I mean, the, the king explanation is if you're not coming then your next in line has to come. Your heir has to come. And so he's the heir. And so, and what Absalom's doing there, Absalom, I mean, obviously is infuriated by what happened to his sister, and rightfully so. But Absalom is also, in killing him, establishing himself as the heir. So there's, there, there are family obligations that are being brought forth, but there are also political and monarchy issues as well. All right. Anything else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Massive. Yeah. And here's the thing. What I love about the Bible, what what I love about this part of the Bible is it is telling a story. The New Testament writers would have said Massivah. They said that he didn't come. It made it feel like because when you read it, you think he's betraying David, and you almost get well. Why would he? Why would he stay behind it? David took care of him. And they want to build that tension. In the New Testament, they would have put a little parentheses, just like the gospel writers did with Judas. He was the one that portrayed Jesus. Later they would find out he supported David. You know, But they let you build that tension for two or three chapters and so that when you find him, you want to know, yeah, tell us what's going on. It's like you're investigating with David. Why, why didn't you come? And he's obviously disheveled and all that stuff. So it's an interesting dynamic there. All right, anything else in 2 Samuel? We're not far from the end of 2 Samuel. Um, you probably guess what 2 Samuel what 2 Samuel kind of ends with, 1 Kings begins with. 2 Samuel is a story of David, and so we're moving towards David's death. One of the most interesting death speeches in history to occur. Uh We'll get into the Kings narrative. I don't know if we get into Kings in the next week or so, but we'll get there soon. Here's the thing. Is your impression of David different reading the entirety of who he is than what you have known of him in the past? What do we we teach about David in Sunday school? Kill Goliath. Now, when you get older in Sunday school, we talk about David and Bathsheba in very sensitive terms. But we talk about it. But we talk about Psalm 51 and what repentance is and why that's a good thing. 
we, we don't mention, that, you don't hear Absalom mentioned much at all. And he's a major player in this drama that's unfolding. Um, and what you have to remember, I told you in Genesis, that God is fierce about protecting his name and his people. And what you have to remember in David's mind, the reason that God loved David so much, where he talks about a man after God's own heart, we ask the question, if he's after God's own heart, that means that he's after the same thing God is after. And if he's after the same thing God is after, then he is fiercely protective of God's name and God's people. And what you do see in David, even in all his failures, is he's constantly, I'm not going to do anything to the Lord's anointed. When he has Saul, when it's my time, it's my time. And even when Absalom takes the throne, if God's done, he's done. This is not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's not about who I am. It's about God's agenda and God's plan and God's family and nation. And so that's why David is pursuing the same thing God is pursuing. We sometimes take that David was a man after God's own heart and make it a mushy love story kind of thing. And not that that's not a part of it, but it's really about he's going after the things God's heart's about. And God's heart is about protecting his people so that he can bring into the world the Savior of the world that can save all mankind. But in order to do that, he's got to protect this line of David. Absalom's coming, yeah. And, and why he wanted the ark sent back. Because he's like, this ain't going to be a, a, we're not going to make this a talisman or a good luck charm. Hey, I've got the ark, I'm going to win. This is God's, it needs to be in God's uh, tabernacle. It needs to be where it is. Absalom, if he thinks it's time for him to take the throne, then we'll see. God will take care. Uh, he, You know, from the time he stood up on the battlefield and said, this is the Lord's battle, uh, I come not with sword and spear, but I come in the name of the Lord, and I'm going to fight his battle. He lived that almost to his dying day. That's why his, when you get to his deathbed confessional, I'll be interested in your thoughts on that because there are a lot of different ideas about it. So, some of you need to go home tonight and just read the rest of Second Samuel and First Kings. Find out what I'm going to. Let me see if we even get there next week or if I'm teasing it too soon. Next week will be June 10th, right? Yes, we'll get there next week. By this time next week, David will no longer be king of Israel. A couple of times. All right, let's go to the book of John. Anything in the book of John? Jack, you're first on the floor. Well. There's one God, yeah, and he he has not he, the God of Christianity, the God that we serve, did not give special prophecies to Muhammad. So they they are misinterpreting either they're misinterpreting who God is. However you do that, it's not Allah is not Yahweh, in my opinion. I I don't think he's talking about Islam here. I think he's talking about Paul, Saul, who persecutes and kills. I think he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And those, but I also think that that I think you can make that interpretation even to today, when people. Um, the truth is, as as believers, uh, just as believers, we don't encounter people on a regular basis that are trying to kill us because they think they're doing the work of God. I mean, obviously, you talked about Islamic terrorist, uh, jihadist. Um, there are definitely those out there that think they're doing the work of Allah. And you can make a broad interpretation that way. They think they're doing the right thing. You can make that interpretation about um, uh, even people that say that we're closed-minded and bigoted because we believe Jesus is the only way and that they think they're doing the work of God. It's just a misinterpretation. His point there is they don't know God. 
he says that they'll try to say they're doing it in the name of God, but they have not known him or me. I don't know. The Crusades are a difficult thing. I mean, it's a black mark on history. Um, wasn't good, but they they thought, but they weren't persecuting true believers. I mean, they were persecuting infidels, people that weren't believers in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily were true believers in doing the will of God, but they weren't persecuting true believers either. So it's a little different situation. And one of the things that one of the things I think about, we do work in in Brazil, but they're all over the world. There are these pockets of people that think they're Christian. Um, in Brazil, there are a lot of people that you walk into their homes and they've got statues of Jesus, they've got statues of Mary, but they can't tell you anything about the gospel. And so when you come in and start talking about Jesus, that's a different Jesus. And they, there, there, there are places where, in, um, not necessarily in European Catholic countries, which that's kind of an oxymoron now, there's not, not any of those, but you know, where Catholicism kind of is based in Western society, not as much as South and African and other societies where people will be persecuted for being evangelical, followers of Jesus, because they're not holding to the state religion, which may have loose ties to Christianity. That's more what's being talked about here. People that, he's specifically telling the disciples, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests, they're going to come after you. But they haven't known me. They don't know the truth. And so it, it, it tells them in one way, don't be, a, I mean, that's going to happen. So expect it. But another way, have compassion in some ways, like Steve said. They're, they're just like you were before you met me, before you knew me. They just don't know me. John is an interesting gospel, and I've said this each time we've talked about it, because the last half of that book is spent on the last few days of Jesus' life. I mean, and it really, you know, you've got this broad picture, and then you get a real sense of what happened in those days. Other things in the book of John that you noticed. Oh, we got a question. Is it Taylor or Diane or who? I'm with you, Diane. Are you reading on your nook up there? Diane's got an electric Bible reader up there. She's high tech. Yeah. Here's the reason for that. The the way that you died, is that the end of your question? I didn't cut you off, did I? Diane, if you couldn't hear, was asking about why they break the legs, basically. They'd done all these terrible things. Why are they breaking the legs? The way that you died on the cross was from um, lack of breath, asphyxiation. Um, you strangled to death, basically. Well, the way that you did that, um, and you can't do this without being kind of graphic. Uh, the I've said this, but you may not remember. The term excruciating is a term that derives itself from death by crucifixion because there was no word to describe how horrible it was. So they made up a word which became excruciating, which is out of crucifixion. The way that you died is, you know, they would nail your arms here, and they would nail your feet. And in order to get your breath, you would have to push up on your legs, on that nail that's embedded in them, push up on your legs to get your breath, and then when you were just worn out, you would collapse again. And when you collapse, just the angle of your body with your arms and down, you could not breathe. And you would do that for hours. I mean, sometimes it took 18, 24 36 hours slowly suffocating to death. So the reason they broke their legs is because when you break their legs, they can no longer push up to get breath. And so it quickens the death. 
Now, Jesus died much more quickly than the average for a couple of reasons. One is he went through much more torture than the average crucifixion person went through. Um, they're also, uh, because when they stab him in the side and the blood and the water flow out, it means that his heart stopped even before he asphyxiated probably. So, you know, I mean, there's the kind of the talk he died of a broken heart or those kind of things. But the main reason is because Scripture had said no bone of his would be broken. In the Old Testament, they said no bone had been broken, would be broken as he died. And so it fulfilled Scripture. That. So, Well, they had to get it done before Passover, but yeah, that's, but that's why breaking the legs would have sped it up. Does that answer your question? Okay. And you may know this, but more than likely, the nails would have gone in through the wrist, not the, not the palms. Um, in ancient Jewish society, this was the hand. So when they went through the hands. And it would have gone through the, one of the largest nerves in the entire body. Um, and it would have gone in the ankles. They would put the two feet together and driven it through both ankles. So they said that you driving a nail through that nerve there, if you ever hit your funny bone, it'd be like someone taking a vice grip to your funny bone and twisting it. I do not know of, and I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't, a more painful and drawn-out way to die than crucifixion. If you think of, even in our society, people that are a proponent of the death penalty, um, when someone is sentenced to die, they try to make it as comfortable of a death as possible, and we think that it should be. You know, lethal injection is now what they use most of the time because the electric chair was too um, cruel and unusual, supposedly. That was not the case with crucifixion. They were trying to make it as bad as possible. You know, there's some conflicting reports. I mean, one of the things is that they know for sure is that um, they did it differently in different places. So what we have in Scripture is just that crucifixion happened and that it was on a cross. Um, and an early Christian script. I mean, they, they crucified some people on an X. Uh, they crucified some people um, different ways. And, you know, Peter supposedly uh, was crucified upside down because he said he could not be killed in the same way as Lord was killed. That's the tradition behind Peter's death. That's not scriptural, but that's the tradition. So there's no one way they did it except that they fastened them. When it, the way it describes in Scripture, they fastened them probably through the wrist, and there was a cross beam that he carried. So Maybe, yeah, yeah. Mel Gibson probably had But I will tell you this, Mel Gibson probably in The Passion of the Christ did as good of a job of depicting the fact that it was a horrible death. You come out in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> Mel Gibson decided he, yeah. You do have that tender moment on the cross when John and Mary are standing at the foot and you see Jesus' love for his mom, um, takes care of her in his final moments, he says. Because, remember, the people that are most vulnerable in their society are widows and orphans. And his mom, even though Jesus had not 
You know, there are times in, especially John and some of the other Gospels, when Jesus almost seems cold to his mom. Mom, it's not my time yet. My family are the ones that do the will of my father. But we see in his last moments his mom is with him, following him there. And he says, make sure she's taken care of. Because we see in the New Testament, out of that teaching partially, that we are to take care of our relatives, to take care of our parents, our children, you know. Many of you are part of what they call the sandwich generation right now. You're taking care of both children or semi-grown children um, and parents and grandkids. So that's the club double-decker club sandwich. All right, anything else in the book of John? Yes, Sue. The prayer of Jesus, yes. I don't think denominations are necessarily evil. I think that they can be. Unity there does not mean that we're all... Unity does not mean that everyone that's a believer in the world is gathered hand in hand, singing together. Um, But it does mean on the essentials of the gospel, we are united. And what you have seen over the last... I definitely think there was a period when denominations were a hindrance to the gospel. Um, And that's probably part of the reason that generation, including my generation and the ones below us, are going to what they call a post-denominationalism world. Um, But it doesn't necessarily have to be. I think the purpose of a denomination like ours is to cooperate together to do the work of God. Um, Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, the Southern Baptist Convention was originally formed for less pure motives. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed because uh, the part of the convention that the Baptists were originally part of were going to condemn slavery. And the Southern Baptist Convention was formed because they were from the South and they didn't want to condemn slavery. And so that's part of our history. But in the 19-teens and 1920s, we developed a cooperative program. We developed foreign missions, international missions, North American missions, and that's I believe denominations are only as good as the mission and ministry work that they're doing. So just as a set of people that develop a hierarchy, I don't think they're good. But if they're funneling their money to do missions and ministry, that we we can't reach the billion people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus. But us, with 5,000 churches, can help make a dent there. And so I think if denominations are that... Instead of, this is who we are, not who we're not. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I also think we need to investigate where we're the same, working with other denominations. In the South, it became a very cliche thing. You knew who the Baptists were, who the Methodists were, who the Presbyterians were, who the Episcopals were, and that's who they are. Don't mess with them. That's who they are. Um, you know, usually it was kind of the third description and somebody. Well, that, you know, Joe, that's uh, Billy's son. Uh, John's daddy, he's the Baptist over there. You know Johnny, he's the Methodist down the street. I mean, you know, we know that. And so in some ways that was divisive, but I think in the world we live in now, that's less that way. Well, and the thing is, if we're honest with ourselves, what we agree on is much more important than what we disagree on. But we live in a place where we like to focus on what we disagree with. And, uh, and so 
and I'm not saying that this necessarily happens at the prison, but so if you've got a, where, where you know there are four or five competing denominations going to be around the same area, you make sure you focus on what makes you different. Um, but the truth is we have much more. You know, I think about the, the girls that we baptized out there a couple of years ago now. I never asked one of them, well, are you Baptist? Are you going to be Baptist when I baptize you? And they didn't, I mean, they knew you went to Baptist church, but it wasn't a discussion about, well, I'm getting a Baptist baptism. I'm just, I'm getting baptized. I believe in Jesus. What the next step is to be baptized. And so I think that denominations are going to struggle for the next several years, partially because if you look at statistics, the interesting thing is formerly in a Baptist church, when people joined your church, 70 to 80 percent came from other Baptist churches. So if you were Southern Baptist and you moved, you went to town and you found a Southern Baptist church and you went. If you got upset about the church you were in, you split it and caused a new church that was going to be Southern Baptist, or you left it and you went to another Southern Baptist church. In the last 20 years, 70, 80 percent of the people that are joining Southern Baptist churches are from other denominations. And so what that means is we don't have a tradition of history of this is who we are. This is what we believe. Uh, I kid sometimes in the 830 service, especially about that a lot of people in that service, uh, a lot of people in our, uh, just in general in our church that are over 50 are what they used to say, uh, uh, I had a friend in college who say his granddad used to have two sayings. One was, I am Southern Baptist born and I am Southern Baptist bred and when I die, I will be Southern Baptist dead. He also used to go in there and he says, you know what, I'm Southern Baptist. You know what I would be if I wasn't Southern Baptist? And his grandson would always oblige him and go, what would you be? He goes, I'd be ashamed. That's what I would be. Now, we don't have, you know, we don't have a lot of that in my generation. Now, I am Southern Baptist born and bred, but I came to a real point in my seminary and uh, towards the end of my seminary my schooling of why. Do I believe this, or is this just because that's the way I was raised? And uh, I'm Southern Baptist now because that's what I believe. That's who I am. That's what I know to be right. So, yes, sir. Well, and here's what I here's my thinking on that passage of scripture. I don't think service to God flows out of unity. I think unity comes from service to God. Now, there's a difference. There are churches that say, we've got to get unified before we can start doing the work of the Lord. I think the work of the Lord brings unity. Um, I've been on several mission trips. I've been in mission projects. I've been in Habitat for Humanity builds. I've been on mission fields, if you will, ministry projects. Not that there aren't occasional little flare-ups, but the most unified I ever see any church or Sunday school class or anybody is when they're doing the work of the Lord. And it's not because we all get around and sing Kumbaya and hold hands and say, we're unified, let's go. It's because you're doing, like you said, Jesus was unified with the Father because he was doing the Father's will. And what he's praying for the disciples is they'll go do my will, and as they do my will, they'll be unified. I think part of the reason, um, well, I didn't intend for this to be a denominational discussion tonight, but we're there. Part of the reason that Southern Baptists have lost our way a little bit is because we stopped doing the work of the Lord. We've started being a convention, being a meeting place, being a 
hierarchy, being where we have all these positions and people and jobs. And if we just do the will, I've never seen a church split that was doing the work of the Lord. Well, well, and here's the thing. If we're all teaching the same thing because we've watered down what we're teaching, that's not good. I mean, there, there, there is a baseline of let's all just teach the same thing and not teach anything. But if we're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his call to us out of that, and what Scripture teaches us to do and obey and how to live, and we're all teaching those just in different ways sometimes, that's good. And there are always going to be issues we're not going to agree on. We could take a poll in here right now, and I could easily come up with some issues that none of us in this room would have 100% agreement on. There are issues in my life that I've flip-flopped on. That's why I'll never be a politician. Everybody run my flip-flop ads, right? But there's secondary issues, and almost all denominations are formed over secondary issues. All right, Psalms, Proverbs. Oh, wait, Jack, is there one more in John? I know you, you were so anxious to get there, and then we're anxious to leave, and you're not ready yet. Well, he is because he has that unique ability to be both. I mean, he is still fully human. It's just the glorified human state and fully God. Um, the interesting thing to me there is I haven't gone back to the Father yet, and this idea that he's still got work to do. I'm not done yet. This is just an intermediate step in the work that I'm doing. Let's go get the guys. Let's get them together. Let's talk about that. But, yeah, he... he he will still speak in a human term. I don't think that he has necessarily lost his humanity because he has been resurrected. Uh, the, in fact, I think he has gained ultimate humanity in his resurrection as we in our human bodies will be ultimately glorified. We just won't have the other part of the equation, which is the complete divinity. But he, he is completely human still. It wasn't a 33-year process. Now, y'all can all go probably find somebody that will tell you I'm a heretic for thinking of that. But um, that's I think that he's speaking because, you know, it, you know, Hebrews makes it clear that he is our advocate, our high priest, the one that understands all that we've been through. So, all right, Psalms, Proverbs. I'm sure you would. Um, let me see if I can find Let me get it in here. I would like to think I could still quote them, but I would miss a couple. I can pronounce them, I think. All right. It's Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Cheth, Zion, Cheth. That's my favorite. Susan always said, you're just clearing your throat. I said, no, I'm because I'd walk around the apartment, our 600-square-foot apartment. She loved me doing my Hebrew. Cheth, Teth, Yod, Kaf, Klamed. Mem nun samik ayin pe shade kof resh sin and shin to. Yes, no vowels. They did not have vowels in their language. So in the original, Aleph Beth Gimel Dalit. That's about all I can do anymore. That's like A B G D. Aleph Beth Gimel Dalit. That's how I had to had to make it my own. Yeah. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Mu, Omicron, Psi, Chi, 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 Psi, Omega. I can do the Greek alphabet. I had four years of Greek. I had two semesters of Hebrew because I am mathematically minded. 
And Greek is a mathematical language, and Hebrew is an artistic language. It's a, yeah, it's a more of a spo- spoken form of Hebrew. It's, yeah, it's more of kind of the conversational Hebrew. Yeah, he, the, the basic idea there is in the, in the Old Testament especially, they saw God, if you will, with kings especially, almost having them on puppet strings, being able to control them if he wanted to, which we would say in his sovereignty he can. Uh, the best example of that, and I, I can't remember exactly what it would have been before that, but the best example of that in the Old Testament is Cyrus, who he puts in position to bring them back. Um, it's Darius and those kings of Babylon that he takes them into bondage to do his will, but they're evil kings, but he still punishes Israel with them. And that's what they have in mind, that God will sometimes use the evil kings, the evil people, to punish us, but they're for his will. He can use them however he wants to. He can ultimately trump. And he's powerful enough to do whatever he wants. Yeah. The, the Old Testament has a much more... Um, what the New Testament would begin to kind of... Like you get to Romans 8.28 where he talks about that he allows it, that he uses it, that things happen and then he turns it to good. The Old Testament has much more... Everything that happens is caused by God. That God causes all things. What you get into then is a discussion that God creates evil. And if God creates evil, then he has some part of him that is evil. And that is a place I don't think Scripture or the Israelites or anyone would want to go. The understanding was, even in the Old Testament and even in this proverb, um, you also have to understand proverb... I'll get that in a minute. He would want to... He could use whatever evil is there to accomplish his purpose. You have to also realize that Proverbs is, in the way it is written, a set of general truths. For instance, spare the rod, spoil the child. So that people would say, well, that means that you have to discipline your children or they'll turn out bad. Well, we all know of cases where there was no discipline and they turned out okay. In places where there were good discipline, and they didn't. So it doesn't mean that if you do this every time. And so Proverbs are more axiomatic. They're more general terms. Um, and so it's hard to take hard theology, truth broad-based from a proverb. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that they're not true. I'm just saying that it's more generalized statements about the way life works. Because if you take some of those Proverbs and say, see, this is what it says then people are going to go, well, here's the exception. Well, that's a generalized axiom, as Proverbs are. You have to take the Scripture for what they are intended to be. But that doesn't mean it's an easy passage. I recognize that, Steve. I was trying to get out of here before anybody asked me about it. Okay. Psalms, Proverbs, anything else? All right. 